0: well good morning church family uh glad you are here this morning and if this is your first time to emmaus i just want to welcome you and say uh we're just we're glad you're here as we gather around god's word we sing we use our gifts because god's made us a family so as we come to the scriptures today we're going to continue in our series on first peter from cultural victim to gospel witness so as we start i'd like for you to take a moment And I want you to bring to mind some sort of hardship, pain, suffering that you are currently experiencing. What is it for you? Is it physical? Is there a diagnosis from a doctor that you weren't expecting and that has altered the course of what's ahead for you? Um, Is it emotional? Is it the the loss of a loved one that you don't know how to get over? Uh, Maybe it's psychological. Is there trauma that you've experienced in your life that has caused much pain and much suffering that was unexpected for you? Most experts say that one of the emotions that ties in most with pain and suffering is shock. There's just this sense of I don't know why this is happening to me. I, I, I don't understand it. I don't know where it's coming from. And, and, and there's no clear direction as to why. But that shock is something that remains whenever we experience pain and suffering. Think of your situation, whatever came to mind. Shock was probably something that you have felt in the midst of it. As we enter into this section of 1 Peter, That's the emotional experience of the people who are receiving this letter. The people of 1 Peter just experienced something called the dispersion, the exile. So there's, there's a couple of ways for us to understand this. There's a persecution that came to those early Christians in Jerusalem from an emperor named Nero in AD 64, where he actually came in and started kicking people out of Jerusalem because of the fact that they deeply loved Jesus. So there's this physical aspect of exile that the people who are receiving this letter have been kicked out of their homes. They're now expats in a new country, new language, new culture, new everything, all because they deeply love Jesus. That's shocking. In addition, there's also a spiritual exile that takes place. For those who are outside of their native homeland, They're experiencing a culture that's actually foreign to the kingdom of God. They're experiencing something that is uniquely different than what they believe spirituality should be like. They've lived a life of loyalty to Jesus and now they're surrounded by a culture that doesn't care in that regard. So in essence, there's a physical exile that these people are experiencing, but there's also a spiritual exile that they're experiencing as well. And, and that's why Peter draws this book to those first couple of words when he says, to the elect exiles. And if you've noticed on our screen, this title screen, over the last couple of weeks, there's these three key words that really sum up the entire book. Exile, identity, and hope. And it's kind of a cyclical pattern. It's one that we can keep going back to to see the theme of First Peter. There's an event that takes place. Exile, you're kicked out of your land. And and because that event took place, there's a realization that there's this identity that you're greater than just where you are in your homeland. There's something bigger that God is doing. And when we understand that this this something bigger is happening in your world, it actually brings about a purpose, hope, hope for the believer. And so as we enter into today's text in 1 Peter chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. If you haven't, it's going to be on the screen. But Peter is working to comfort the suffering who are experiencing pain. They're experiencing shock. They don't know what to do. And so my prayer for you this morning is that as we go through this text, that you would experience a similar comfort and joy from God's word in the midst of your own pain. So we're going to pick it up in verse 12. Verse 12 starts off like this. He says, Beloved. When Peter writes, when, when, let's say this, when an author writes, they purposely choose words for a reason. At this point in time, Peter could have said anything. He, he's actually used many types of words to describe God's people all throughout this text. Exile being one of them, disciples being another, followers, Christians. But here, he doesn't use any of that language. He, he says, <clears throat> beloved. Now, why? Why would he choose that? Why would he choose to call these people beloved? This is, this is Peter's pastoral work coming to play. Those who suffer need the reminder that they are dearly loved by God. They, they, they have to remember that in the midst of their pain and their anguish and their suffering, that God has not forgotten them. That that God hasn't abandoned them. God is not the divine deist who started the world in motion and then bailed. He's here. He's present. He's with them. So with this one word, Peter's reminding God's people of God's covenant love from the beginning of time. Covenant language is all throughout the scriptures. And, And in reality, those covenant languages are more like contracts in the ancient world if you're an exile of Jewish descent, you would remember that God's covenant love started with Abraham. And what did it do? It continued to Isaac and it continued to Jacob. And a covenant is simply this. It's God's extraordinary work to bring a people to himself to experience his loving rule. And here's the beauty where all of the risk is on God's side. When you enter into a contract, it's very clear that you are supposed to read through that contract to know what your liabilities are when you sign said contract. When it comes to covenant, there's no liability on your end. It's all on God's. He's taking the risk. He's the one choosing to love a people that he knows will continually walk away. He's the one choosing to come after a people who would continually run away from him. And God's love for his people is not something superfluous or, or flighty. It's, it's consistent. It's foundational. It's unchanging. And this is why he uses the term beloved. He says, guys, in the midst of your suffering, remember that you are beloved. Based on circumstances alone, if we're in their shoes, it's pretty easy to say that God doesn't love us. You can relate. It's it's easy in your life when there's circumstances that are going well and prospering that you can look at your life and go, wow, look at the blessing of God. Look at God's blessing on my life. When you get the promotion, when you find the spouse of your dreams, when you get accepted into the college that you have been striving to get after for years, or when the dreams of your entrepreneurial endeavors are actualized, it's so easy for us to look and go, oh, look at what God's doing. Look at his blessing on my life. And it's also easy to think that God's love has ceased or has been absent when things do not go our way. When you're unexpectedly let go from the company you've been with for 20 years, when your spouse decides that they maybe want another spouse, or when your dreams aren't actualized, but they actually become pipe dreams, there's no chance that those dreams are becoming real. So let's put that into the first century context. If you are a Jew, God has promised you that you're gonna receive something beyond just his presence. He says, you're actually gonna receive land. There's a land that I'm gonna have for you. That's the whole story of the Old Testament. There's a land flowing of milk and honey that's gonna be your place where, where I am king and I rule over you and you get to see, the world gets to see the glory of God being shown. So if you're a Jew and you're kicked out of the land, you're no longer back in the land. How does that make you feel? If the promises of land and it is no longer there, you ask questions like this. Is is this punishment from God? Is this exile judgment from God? That's not foreign. They've seen that in Israel's history. There's been multiple exiles. And and because of Israel's disobedience, there's been constantly things that God has thrown their way are we, are we the cause of this exile? Is, is, is it our own wickedness that's causing this? Or maybe even asking the, the totality of the question, am I, am I out of God's favor? I think the better question Peter is asking us to assume is this, has God's covenant love ceased for you? And the answer is an emphatic No. The covenant love of God never ceases, never fails, and is our constant foundation in the midst of life's turmoils. His love for you doesn't grow more in times of your joy, and his love for you doesn't diminish when you are in anguish. This is what makes the love of God so magnificent. The love of God can actually ground us. It's that foundation for the life that we can build our house on. His love is always faithful, always pursuing, always there. So when Peter says, beloved, he's wrapping up all of this pastoral encouragement to the title that he gives these people. You are dearly loved by God. So after calling the church by their name, beloved, Peter continues to flesh out this idea of what do we do with shock? Verse 12 continues. <clears throat> Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So after reminding the church of their identity, he works to reshape their response. And this is fascinating. He says, th- they shouldn't be surprised when trials come their way. This isn't strange for the Christian, Peter saying. My question is, Why? Why isn't it strange? Why why, why do the people think it's strange? Obviously, Peter, as their pastor, is looking at them and going, yeah, you guys shouldn't be surprised. But in reality, they actually are. What's interesting is that when we read the scriptures, we can oftentimes forget that there's more of a nuance in the original languages of the scriptures than in the English translation. So in, in the Greek, there's a there's a different imagery that's being shown when he says, "Don't be surprised," and, and that imagery is one of like surprise is translated as entertaining like a host. So last weekend, Super Bowl, biggest entertaining day of the year, right? Everybody goes all out. It's time to entertain. There's an unwritten rule for guests at a Super Bowl party or any party for that matter. Does anyone want to take a stab? What's the unwritten rule for a party, if you're a guest? What is it? Always bring something. Always bring something. Okay, what else? Unwritten rule. You, you didn't think it was a little interaction, sorry. Matt will talk at you, I will talk with you. Is that fair? Can we do that? Okay. 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 Here's one that came to mind for me. At some point in time, you have to go home. If you're a guest at the Super Bowl party, there's a point in time where you get up, take your empty plate of nachos, and leave. You go home. Now that you've come, you've enjoyed the game, you watch the Super Bowl commercials, everything's great, but you leave. That's the unwritten rule. So how strange would it be if someone showed up to your Super Bowl party that you're hosting, and instead of bringing nachos and beer, they show up with luggage. That would be odd. How about this? How strange would it be that at the Super Bowl party is over, guests all grab their dishes and they're leaving, that particular someone who brought luggage goes into your spare room and starts unpacking? Even more surprising. This is what Peter's trying to tell the beloved. We're surprised by suffering because we have the wrong expectation of it. Suffering doesn't show up with nachos. It shows up with baggage and tow. That's what it's there to do. And that's why it's surprising. We don't expect it. We don't expect suffering is, is there. We want suffering to come in, bring the nachos, and bail. It's like, oh, we'll have you in our life for a little bit of time, a time that I feel comfortable with, But the moment suffering starts getting comfortable in your world, you become uncomfortable. But that's what Peter's saying, guys, no, 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 no. Don't be surprised when suffering hangs around for a while. Suffering doesn't pop in for a few hours and then leave. For the Christian, it's a reality that we have to process in this present life. Paul, in his final words to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says this, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is one of the last things that Paul ever writes to anybody in his earthly life, and he goes, remember, pain is coming. And and the the message of this is simply antithetical to the culture in which we live. Human, Human perspective, and I don't know if you'd agree with me on this, but I... People want to escape suffering at all costs. That's why you have money. That's why you get raises. That's why you find vacations. That's why you try to fix things in your life. Because you want to be at this equilibrium where everything's good and nothing is bad. That's the expectation of humanity. But here's the takeaway. Suffering isn't a guest at the Christian's dinner party. It's a temporary resident with an earthly lease. It it brings up this idea that Jesus talks about often in the gospels of the already not yet principle of the kingdom of God. When Jesus comes on the scene, one of the most miraculous things he does is that he brings heaven to earth. He brings the reality of what's going on in heaven to this earthly broken realm. So there's miracles, there's signs and wonders, there's people being healed, there's reconciliation happening between hatred, between ethnic groups, there's repentance, marriages are restored. Like when when the kingdom of God is here, it's visible. And yet there's also an aspect to the kingdom of God that's not quite yet. This is when earth seemingly prevails over heaven, when you pray and the healing doesn't come or when hatred that you feel in your heart will just not go away or when sin continues to rule and reign suffering falls underneath that side of the kingdom principle. Yes, God has brought his kingdom, but it is not complete yet. And in that Peter reminds them of the purpose of these sufferings He says trials test you He says don't be surprised. Don't be thrown off when tests come your way, as as if it's strange. James is a contemporary of Peter. So James, Jesus' brother, wrote the book of James, and it's one of the earliest manuscripts in all of church history. So Peter and James are contemporaries. And and James, I I would say that Peter actually stole this idea from James. So in James chapter 1, this is what James is saying to those people. He says this to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Ding, ding, ding. That's our, that's our historical reference. It says, hey, this is a similar time frame. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Peter picks up this idea from James to be the encouragement for the church. So, for those who are in shock, don't be surprised. Don't be thrown off when they come your way. It's it's, it's meant to test your faith. And the purpose of those tests is to prove what's really there. My mom was an educator growing up, and one of the things that I always hated was when she brought home tests for me to grade. I'm like, I'm eight, mom. I'm not grading a third grade test. Like, this is terrible. This is your job. But when I was doing their test, and I I had to do what my mom was asking me to do, but when I was grading, it was just shocking because there were just some kids who knew it, and there's some kids who didn't. But, But that's the purpose of a test, is to say, hey, I need to see what's really happening, what's really going on. It's very easy to follow God when things are great. The test shows how much do you really want to follow God in the midst of pain? So Peter continues. He wants the exiles to respond appropriately, away from shock, what they're currently experiencing, towards something greater. We'll pick it up in verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. Whenever I read the scriptures, I always try to slow down and see if this makes logical sense. Like that's that's how reading comprehension works. You got to slow down and go, okay, is this making sense? This is the point in time where Peter loses me. This is the point in time where I think Peter's a little bit crazy. He just told a suffering people to rejoice in it. So for, for me, if I'm reading this, Peter goes from this masterful pastor to help shepherd his people, say, hey, beloved. And then he moves to the realm of insensitivity by saying, hey, rejoice in your suffering. Like, let's be clear. If you're suffering and anybody says, you just got to rejoice in it. Internally, you're like, I want to punch you in the face. Like, I don't, I don't want to hear that right now. Okay, so maybe I'm the only aggressive one in the room. That's fine. That's totally fine. But when, when I hear that, I don't go, yay. I go, no. Why would you say that? When, when, who rejoices when they suffer? No one. We complain. We moan. We groan. We grieve. We don't rejoice. So are, are we just supposed to enjoy it? Like as Peter's saying, rejoice in your suffering, jump for joy, be excited when all this happens to you? I want to suggest that I don't think Peter's crazy, but I think he is trying to change our response. So again, the Greek text greens a little bit more of a nuance to this individual reading. The word rejoice at the beginning of verse 13 is also translated elsewhere like this to be calmly happy or to be well off. So in essence, if we were to retranslate this real quick, could also be faithful to say this, but understand that you are well off insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. This is crucial. Peter is not looking at you and say, jump for joy because you're experiencing pain. He's saying that we need to move from a place of shock to a place of resolve, like this deep sense internally of calmful happiness that we realize that something bigger is going on. It's this inward sense that that we're grounded in something, that, that something is holding on to us as we try to let go. He actually says that we're well off when we share in Christ's suffering. So there's many aspects of suffering though that we have to consider. I think naively often at times you and I both can read the scriptures and go, okay, so sufferings like when you're getting beaten for your faith and when you're being thrown in jail, like anything that happens in third world countries, but not in 21st century Portland. Like that's, that's what suffering is. But suffering goes well beyond that. Think of how Christ himself suffered. So if Peter's encouragement, Hey, hey, you're actually well off when you share in Christ's sufferings, what in the world were his sufferings? How did Christ suffer? Yes, he suffered physically. He was spat on, he was beaten, he was tortured, he was crucified. But he also experienced social ostracization. He was deserted by his closest friends in his greatest moment of need the Garden of Gethsemane. When when Jesus needed some guys to hang with him, they bailed, they peaced out, they said, no thanks. He was betrayed for like 60 bucks. Like he, he, like somebody actually thought he was worth 60 bucks and said, here you go. I'm going to give you Jesus. He was falsely accused by those in authority. (laughs) Imagine Jesus walking around all the time with the Jewish leaders, constantly looking at him saying, no, you're not the son of God. No, you're not this. No, you're not that. He, He was written off because he was from a bad town. Like when they found out Jesus was from Nazareth, they're like, dude, nothing good comes from there. What what about this? He also experienced emotional suffering and spiritual suffering. He, He experienced true separation from the Father for the first time ever on the cross. Jesus experiences the full range of human suffering. And what we have to remember is that suffering is greater than just physical persecution has social constructs. It has emotional constructs. It has spiritual constructs. It has psychological constructs to it. So Peter's encouragement is this. Don't be shocked. Have some resolve. But here's where it gets interesting. You'll notice verse 13 actually has the word rejoice again in it on the back half. It's written twice. This time, that word actually does mean jump for joy. It actually does mean Rejoice, But but look at what he's saying. Look at the context. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. So be well off as you share in those sufferings that you may also jump for joy and be glad when the glory of God is revealed. Something that we have to consider and something that we have to remember is this. The glory of God continues to show up all throughout the story of God in unexpected ways. And one of those ways is through suffering. We need not look further than the cross of Jesus Christ to see how suffering can actually bring about glory. What does the author of Hebrews say in twelve, in, in chapter 12? For the joy set before him, what did Christ do? He endured the cross, summoning himself to its shame. Why? Because of the joy set before him that was you. God's glory is revealed that when Satan tries to stomp out the kingdom of God, what does he do? He sidesteps. He moves out of the way. He finds another angle. And he says, my glory is going to continue to show up. Glory is defined as weight and worth. It's like Peter is saying, guys, when you suffer, God's weight is going to be shown in this world. His glory is going to be made manifest as you hang in there with your suffering. He continues, it gets even more rich and sweeter still. Peter says this, when you're insulted for my sake, you're actually blessed. Why? The Spirit of God hangs with you. It rests upon you. Peter is saying that in your sufferings, you're blessed because the presence of God is actually with you. Here's the idea of biblical blessing. We saw this from our sermon in the mount series just a year ago. Blessing is the presence of God. Period. That's all it is. Blessing is not how awesome life is for you. Blessing is not the amount of money in your bank account. Blessing is not how great your marriage is. Blessing is that you get God. You get him. But this is just like the Beatitudes. Jesus is pronouncing blessing on those who seemingly shouldn't be getting it. Blessed are the poor and meek, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who mourn, for one day they will not mourn anymore. This is the beauty that Peter is reminding the church who is in shock. You actually share in the tangible presence of God. There's something beautiful about the fact that when we are in pain, we are not alone. There's something beautiful about the fact that the father in heaven sees your pain. And what does he do? He engages it with you and he hangs with you through it all. His covenant love is practical to you and your pain. So with Peter trying to change the church's perspective on suffering, There also comes need for clarification. We we have to understand different types of suffering. And this is precisely what Peter does next in the text. Check this out. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So Peter longs to bring some clarification to those who are suffering. He's essentially saying this. You have to have discernment to figure out where the source of suffering is coming from. Is it God-ordained or is it self-induced? You see, believers need to have discernment in this because oftentimes we can be so quick to go one way or so quick to go the other way. You've met people in your life, and at points in times, you've probably been the person in your life who's hyper-spiritualized everything, where you look at the problems and your pain, you say, ah, that's probably some spiritual warfare well, what if you were just rude to your wife, dude? Like, what if you caused that? Or uh, there's other times where you look at yourself and you're so negative and self-deprecating. You're like, man, I must be the source of this. Like, what did I do wrong to deserve this? When in reality, God might have some ordained purpose for the suffering you're going through. And this is what Peter's trying to distinguish. He's saying, look, guys, don't suffer as a murderer thief evildoer or meddler modern translation it's your fault if you kill someone steal something commit critical activity or you're the gossip queen or king at your workplace okay that's what this says it's fascinating that he throws the word meddler in there too like the first three were like totally that's all your fault but meddler like that's my fault peter would say that it is by by all means the list is not exhaustive here, okay? It, if you use people at your job to get ahead, don't be surprised when you're walking alone and no one supports you. God's not bringing you through a trial at your work, you created one. Like that's what's happening. Don't, again, if you're if you're rude to your spouse, don't be alarmed when there's relational tension in your home. Your your marriage is not experiencing spiritual warfare. You're being a punk. That's what's happening on both sides, husband or wife. You're choosing to be selfish. That's that's what's going on. So, this is what Paul, or not Paul, this is what Peter is constantly trying to say. He says, Hey guys, you have to know which one is which. We, We have to figure out, is this me? Or is God doing something bigger in me? So, he puts it this way here's a tough pill to swallow. Time has come. For judgment, to begin at the household of God. I know judgment is everybody's favorite word. This is the the we're going to talk about judgment. Best thing ever. We, We live in a world that makes judgment a terrible thing. The whole you do you advice is the worst thing I've ever heard. Just go do whatever you want. Terrible advice. It's terrible. But because we don't slow down enough to discern what is good from evil, what is right from wrong, what is truth and falsity we don't actually know how to work through our own suffering. Remember, judgment flows from the love of God, not from the hatred of God. Even the hard text in the Old Testament, it would be pressing for you to point out an example of me that God unleashes hatred on a people and that it doesn't actually come from the love of God deep down. You parents know this. When you pronounce judgment on your kids, when you're trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong, are you doing it because you hate them? No, you do it because you dearly love them and you're trying to help them out. It's the same thing with God. God's love allows you to be where you are right now, but it doesn't allow you to remain there. That's that famous quote. God loves you where you are, but he's not going to let you stay here. That's what's happening in this text. He's drawing a line of sand in the believers. It's like, look, it's judgment time. We have to know what's true from false. We have to know what's right from wrong. We have to know what the response is to our own suffering. And I would say there's two faithful responses to suffering. The first is acceptance. There ha- if suffering, if you've discerned that the suffering you're experiencing in your life is actually from God, not because of you, not because of your own sinfulness, but you think God is doing something in this. Your response isn't one of fear, shock, surprise, or disillusionment. It's one of acceptance. Because you can know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, perseverance. It's going to bring about maturity in your life so you can accept that this suffering is from God. Because I know that I'll experience blessing from his presence through my suffering. I can actually accept that from God because I know that the God's glory, his weight, his worth, his massive reign is going to be shown through my suffering, I can accept the fact that I am suffering. And the other side of that is repentance. Acceptance, if it's from God. Repentance, if it's from you. If your suffering is self-induced, if you've had discernment enough, do you know what? This is on me the Spirit of God is convicting your soul, saying, yeah, this is you, you can actually respond in repentance. You don't have to be shocked by the suffering, you don't have to be thrown off by it, you can actually move to a place of repentance. There's other ways to respond to hardship, and in my life, the way that I've responded to hardship oftentimes is one of avoidance. I don't know about you, if you've ever read the Enneagram or done personality tests or whatever, I'm a seven. So my key word is fun. Fun Fun is the, is the word, the banner that goes over Steve Pyram's life. It's fun. When my kids come home from school, you know what I ask them? Hey, did you have a fun day? Like I asked that question. I had lunch with Matt on Wednesday and he's like, I have never once asked my children if their day was fun. Like there's something weird about you. It's true. So for me, as a seven, I, I want to uh, avoid pain. Pain is the worst thing that I've ever experienced. Like pain is like life or death. It's either everything's amazing or this is the worst day of my life. But what God has done through a number of different circumstances in my story is that he's forced me to work through the pain. And when I stopped avoiding it and started engaging it, the change that I always longed for to happen happened. Like, by God's grace and God's grace alone, he's saying, hey, Steve, you need to actually deal with the fact that you can be the source of your own suffering. And I had to come to grips with that fact in my own life over the last five years in so many different arenas. If you want to find out, let's grab coffee. I'll tell you my life. It's crazy. But God has been good to me by giving me discernment and helping me understand that the suffering that I've experienced is actually because of me. And God, in his grace, wants me to move to a different spot, to have a different perspective, and to really understand that suffering has a purpose. You see, ultimately, this is what Peter is saying. There is purpose in the pain. At the end of this verse, he even says, like, if, you guys, if you guys can't figure this out for yourselves, like, what's the outcome going to be for those who don't love Jesus? Like if you guys can't slow down enough and actually be discerning enough to understand these things, the people without the spirit of God have zero hope. That's what Peter's saying. But this is what he's after. He's after this new perspective on suffering in you. Don't be surprised when trials come your way. He also says, don't suffer because of your own simple choices. And this is how he ends this section. He, he's masterful in how he ends this. Watch this. These profoundly beautiful words at the end of verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So considering all that has been said from Peter in this short little section, to those who suffer, he gives them an action. He says, entrust yourself to God. To entrust means to place up, to offer up, You can think of it in so many different contexts, right? You entrust your money to the stock market to get a return from it. You you, you move something into an institution to get a return. We entrust our children to go to schools for their development and their education, right? Likewise, we entrust our souls to God who's going to do something with us. Who's going to do something in it for us. When was the last time in your suffering you took a moment, you looked at God and you said, God, I don't know why this is going on. I don't know what's up. I feel terrible. I'm grieving. This is really, really painful, but I'm going to offer this up to you. Like I'm actually going to give myself to you. It's not the typical human response. We want God to fix it. We're like, God, why isn't this changing? If you're good, and if you're great, and if you're sovereign, fix it. I don't want hardship to remain. I want it to stop. But, but what do we do when the suffering that comes isn't stopping? If circumstances don't change, and everything remains the same, and you're still struggling, what do you do? You offer up your soul to God. God. And see, this this is what's challenging. What's challenging is when you see the words "suffering according to God's will." If we look at this and we just read it plainly, we can think God's being pretty insensitive too. What's God's will? It's what He wants, right? It's what God wants. So if I read this, I can say, "Oh, so apparently God wants for me to suffer." No, God does not delight in suffering. He uses it for His glory. So in this, we have to understand that this isn't God's desired will. This isn't what he actually wants. What Peter is saying is that when it comes your way and in the grand scheme of things, of God's ultimate actual practical will taking place in this life, when that happens, entrust yourself to God because he knows what he's doing. And the biggest thing is this. You entrust anything to something that is faithful. You don't put your money into a stock if you don't get a return from it. You don't send your children to a school where they're not actually educated. And you don't put your faith in a God who is not faithful. But because he is, we can. Because he is faithful, we can entrust everything we are to this purposeful word that Peter calls him. He says he's the creator. He's the designer of this world. He knows what's going on. He's more intimately acquainted to all the pain and suffering and hardship in this world than you've ever experienced. And he still says, entrust yourself to me. Peter doesn't say this. Christian, go fix your problem. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. He says there's purpose in the pain. If we're to follow Jesus's example, this is exactly what he did. Look at 1 Peter 2. For to this you have been called. Earlier in the series, we've heard this message already, but there's a, here's a highlight. But to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter is saying, if Jesus can do this, so can you. If you want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, he suffered as well. And what did he do? What's the example that he did? He said, God, I'm trusting you in this. When he's in the garden and he's sweating blood because he's so insanely stressed out about what's to come with the crucifixion, he goes, God, I don't want this cup. I don't want to drink this, but I'm going to, and I'm going to entrust myself to you. And this is Peter's final ask to the church. He says this, entrust yourself to God while doing good. If there's one thing suffering is really, really good at, it's putting a stop to your activity. It's putting a stop to the momentum that God has in your life. And what Peter is saying is, don't stop. Just because it's hard, keep going. Keep moving. Keep praying. Keep asking. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep doing justice in the world. Keep making things right in the world. And in the midst of all of it, keep entrusting yourself to me. So if we were to wrap this up, think of the suffering I asked you to bring to mind earlier on. In light of this text, in light of God's faithfulness to you in the past, will you entrust yourself to God today? Right now, in the pain. Will you choose to go to God today to God, "I hate that I'm going through this, but I know you're using it. This is Peter's desire to move the church from a place of shock to a place of resolve. God is with you in your pain, Emmaus Church. God is with you in your suffering. God's covenant love will ground you so you are unshakable and God's grace and mercy will carry you. What does David say in Psalm 23? I've walked through the valley of the shadow of death and I will fear no evil. Why? You're with me. I put a table in front of my enemies and my cup overflows because you're with me. So here's a couple of closing thoughts as we consider what Peter has told us. First and foremost is that suffering isn't a guest at the dinner party. It's taken up residence in the believer's life. Next, you have to discern the source of suffering. Is this God at work or is this you? And because we understand the source, we can then respond appropriately with acceptance Or repentance. And finally, God is trustworthy. He can be trusted with your pain. He can be trusted with your heartbreak. And because of that, the invitation is for you to entrust yourself to God. As we close our time together, we're going to sing. We're going to come to the table. But today, as you come to the table, it's a purposeful one just based upon the topic itself. When you open up the bread and the cup, it's literally a reminder of Jesus' suffering for you. So my ask is that as you drink and as you eat, my hope is that you can entrust yourself to God even in that action. You're experiencing the blessing of God by his presence because Christ suffered and died. So as you come, would you bring your sorrow would you bring your pain, and would you entrust yourself to a faithful God? Jesus, thank you for the text of scripture. Thank you that it helps us. Thank you that you continue to amaze us. And at the end of the day, the story is still all about you. It's all about your love, your grounding love, all about your grace. And all about how you continue to carry us in the midst of our pain. So Jesus, would you help us see things clearly? Would you help us entrust our souls to you? And may we do this by the grace that you provide. In Jesus' name.